It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Friday, August 7, 2020. On today's episode, TV and movie librarian Stephen Tomlinson is here to talk about a book by Nick Tosh on the life of Dean Martin. But after the split, as big as that of the Beatles in their day, you know, Dean never again ventured anywhere near the magic of the comic improv that he had had with Jerry. Though I think the Rat Pack years, uh, the, their performances of the early 60s attempted, with mixed results, to duplicate something of that spirit. Music librarian Farah Muhammad is here with another musical moment. Today, she is honoring National Book Lovers Day. Every August 9th is National Book Lovers Day, a holiday observed by bibliophiles far and wide who celebrate reading and literature. Just a quick reminder that if you are listening to us on your favorite podcast player, please do leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts because every review and rating helps others to find this show. Here is Stephen Tomlinson. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. That's me. And for the next 20 minutes or more, I'll be talking about movies and television while providing some recommendations for what to watch and where to watch them. But today, I'll be taking a bit of a departure from all that in talking about a movie-related book, a biography, in fact, if not entirely characteristic of the form, entitled Dino, Living High in the Dirty Business of Dreams, by Nick Tosh. A rather controversial take on the life of Dean Martin, which was first published back in 1992, just three years before Martin died. While this book draws heavily from interviews that its author did with Jerry Lewis, Dean Martin's early partner in crime, so to speak, and with Martin's second wife and lifelong friend, Jeannie Biger, this is often a very unusually written biography. Nick Tosh who passed away last October, was himself not only a biographer, but a poet, novelist, and music journalist. And he gives his work here a certain thoughtful literary quality that was, of course, completely foreign to the unpretentious Dean Martin himself. So you might think that the subject and author here make for a mismatched pair, but it soon becomes clear why Tosh has chosen to write about Martin, insofar as Martin is interesting not only for his own sake, but for what his great success says about the emptiness of so much of popular culture and contemporary life. Yes, quite a weighty theme I know. But there's also an equally ambitious, if very controversial, artistic gammon at work here as well, in which, especially towards the end of the book, Nick Tosh has chosen to write in the first person and from the point of view of Dean Martin himself, as if reflecting upon a life that the famously reticent real-life Dean was uninterested in doing himself. But make no mistake, there is also very much a richly detailed, well-researched biography here in the conventional sense, present alongside the rather more unconventional aspects that altogether make for a constantly engaging read. Nick Tosh's book certainly covers all the details that it needs to cover, and in a chronological fashion. The story begins at the beginning, with the births of Martin's grandparents in Italy and follows his entire life 
up to the point of publication. That Dean Martin was born Dino Crochetti in Steubenville, Ohio in 1917, not speaking a word of English until he was six years old. So strong was the influence of the Italian community in which he grew up. That he was raised by a large extended family, that his father was a barber and his cousins and uncles all worked in the steel mills of Ohio. But bored with school and eager to avoid a life in those very same steel mills, the young Dino looked for a means, a shortcut really, to achieve a much greater and more immediate success. One of the things most interesting about Martin's career is just how tangential it was with so many underworld figures. Even as early as age 14, he was helping his pals, the Rizzo brothers, run bootleg whiskey during Prohibition, before becoming a card sharp in the backroom casinos of Ohio. He then began singing nights and weekends in small clubs at age 17 as a Crosby-style crooner. They all did in those days. Though his real idol was not Bing Crosby, but the actor and former New York gangster, George Raft, whom he would befriend and visit often later on in Hollywood. At age 23, in 1940, Dino rechristened himself Dean Martin after a brief stint as Dino Martoni, before crooning for Sammy Watkins and his orchestra at Cleveland's Vogue Room, where he would receive his first published review, by variety no less. Having sat through a bill featuring Sigrid Dagny, the beauteous ballerina, and Floretta Boyette, the mental mystic, Variety's Glenn Pullen gave Martin a glowing notice, writing, and I quote, he backs a personable kisser with a warm, low tenor and an agreeable manner, quote unquote. So right from the start, much of the latter-day Martin persona seems already present here. The good looks, the comfortable sexuality, the singing quality, and the affable, relaxed manner. All that's missing is the faux-stage drunk of the Vegas years. By 1944, Martin signed with the powerful MCA talent agency and made his New York City debut that same year. In fact, he only got the gig... When another young Italian sensation, I think you know where I'm going here, Frank Sinatra canceled. Then that personable kisser was improved upon thanks to a $500 nose job courtesy of his one-time quasi-manager comic actor Lou Costello. Yes, that Costello of Abbott and Costello fame. But Costello had company, um, <laughs> always the player at this time. And to keep himself afloat financially, Dino had sold off pieces of himself until there was literally nothing left. Costello got 25%, MCA got 10%, Agent Lou Perry got 35%, Dick Richards, yet another manager, got 20%, and Sammy Watkins, he took 10%. I think that's 100%. Yes, it is. By 1946, in mired in lawsuits, Dino declared bankruptcy. But less than two months later, lightning struck when Martin found himself on a bill with Jerry Lewis, who performed a kind of pantomime novelty comedy sketch. When the two men took the stage together one night, playing around during an after-hours show, the team of Martin and Lewis was born. And by the early 50s, they were starring in films, hosting TV and radio shows, recording albums, and making 
$50,000 or more a week at club dates. What happened between the two of them in live shows was apparently one for the ages. Together, they became this unstoppable juggernaut with few performers of any kind as popular or as in demand as they were as a team from 1946 to 1955. And Tosh, in that way, he has this jazzy prose styling that is inimitably his own, really is able, I think, to capture that, that dynamic, devoting a healthy chunk of the biography to chronicling the Martin and Lewis saga, and rightfully so, since it's easily the most psychologically complex part of Dean Martin's life. The act was an inspired twist on vaudeville's old straight man and banana man act, but here refashioned as the handsome man and the monkey. And you know which was which. Dean personified the romance, the sex appeal, and the sophistication, while Jerry was the delinquency, the slapstick, and the madcap anarchy. In the 1950s, while Las Vegas was becoming center stage, off in the wings was a host of underground cultural forces, such as a brooding film noir, beat poetry, and fierce avant-garde jazz, forms just too adventurous, even subversive to be embraced by the pop mainstream. But what the mainstream could embrace was the inspired, unruly lunacy of Martin and Lewis on stage. The act was virtually all improv and spontaneous mayhem. But unfortunately, no recording of the duo's nightclub performances survive neither audio or video. But to hear Tosh tell it, Martin and Lewis were a distinctly Cold War era creation. The frenzied response to the dread inspired both by A-bombs and McCarthyism. It was a kind of catharsis, a celebration of ignorance, absurdity, and stupidity, Tosh writes. A denial of darkness itself, a regression, a transporting to the preternatural bliss of infantile senselessness, he continues in explanation of their appeal, if dangerously on the verge of overwriting. But nothing lasts forever, and the partnership of Martin and Lewis finally disintegrated, prompted both by Lewis' manic insecurities and ambitions for movie directing grandeur, which he would go on to do after the split, but also by Dino's inability or unwillingness communicate his growing disenchantment with Lewis, and especially with a stream of reviews hailing Lewis' improvisational comedy at the expense of Martin's straight man crooning. In fact, as early as 1948, no less an authority than Frank Sinatra himself had opined in favor of Lewis. So after a final 1956 engagement, Dean made his move, telling Jerry that he was ending things. According to Lewis, who was hoping to salvage at least something of a friendship, he told Martin, you know, I think it's love. I think it's how we still feel about each other. But Martin cut him off. You can talk about love all you want, he responded. But to me, you're nothing but a bleeping dollar sign. Now, when their remarkably successful partnership broke up, probably no one had imagined that Martin would remain as popular as he did in subsequent decades. And in various guises, indeed, I think people had assumed that Martin needed Lewis much more than the other way around. But after the split, as big as that of the Beatles in their day, you know, Dean never again ventured anywhere near the magic of the comic improv that he had had with Jerry. Though I think the Rat Pack years, uh, the, the performances of the early 60s attempted, with mixed results, 
to duplicate something of that spirit. Yet, Martin remained a huge star. And at the height of his solo success uh, in the late 60s, he was earning more than a cool $200,000 a picture for doing not much more than loafing about in his well-worn persona, especially in those Matt Helm movies uh, and dozens of even worse films. You might even say that only Elvis, who idolized Martin, by the way, made even more bad movies in this period than Dean did. Not that Dean cared. It was all about the paycheck as far as he was concerned. But, you know, it had not always been that way. And you need only see his appearances in a series of movies from the late 50s to see what a strong, dramatic actor he could be. And I'm thinking here of the movies The Young Lions, Some Came Running, and especially Rio Bravo. All quite a departure from what he had been doing with Lewis, um, and before squandering it on a kind of semi-permanent public persona of a genial but a drunken louche uh, that becomes so apparent in those Matt Helm movies. Though, of course, it's very unlikely that Martin would have seen it that way. Indeed, by the 1970s, uh, he was making $15 million a year and had become, especially through real estate investments, one of the richest men in showbiz. So I think it's fair to say that a lot of other people wouldn't have seen it my way either. Certainly my favorite among his movies, among his dramatic performances, is Rio Bravo, uh, a 1959 Western starring John Wayne in which Martin plays his drunken deputy. But not for laughs. No, not at all, in fact. There are many Western tropes at play, of course, in the movie. But at its best, Rio Bravo has this redemptive arc by which the Martin character is really seen to work hard to get back his self-respect and his professionalism. And it's all quite moving. You know, the film's producer-director Howard Hawks is known for having made many films featuring characters among whom a sense of professionalism is most valued. And that's a curious thing about Dean Martin. Despite the drunken persona, everyone seems to agree that he was a consummate professional when at work, at least until his very last years when he was quite ill. He had always been prepared, even knowing all the lines of his co-stars in making his many movies. Though famously resistant to doing rehearsals or more than one take, unless absolutely necessary. Here is a passage from the book in which Howard Hawks talks about Martin. I hired him, Hawks remembered, because an agent wanted me to meet him. And I said, well, get him here around nine o'clock tomorrow morning. The agent said, he can't be here at nine. So he came in at about 1030. And I said to Dean, I said, why the hell couldn't you be here at nine o'clock? And Dean said, I was working in Las Vegas and I had to hire an airplane and fly down here. And that made me think, well, my Lord, this guy really wants to work. So I said to him, you'd better go over and get some wardrobe. And Dean replied, am I hired? And I said, yeah, anybody who'll do that ought to get a chance to work on one of my pictures. So Dean came back from wardrobe, 
looking like a musical comedy cowboy. And I said, Dean, look, you know a little about drinking. You've seen a lot of drunks. I want a drunk. I want a guy in an old, dirty sweatshirt and an old hat. And Dean said, okay, you don't have to tell me anymore. So he went back to wardrobe and came back with the outfit that he wore in the picture. He must have been successful, too, because Jack Warner said to me while watching the movie together, hey, we hired Dean Martin. When's he going to be in this picture? And I said, he's that funny looking guy in the old hat. Holy smoke, replied Jack Warner. Is that Dean Martin? So yeah, Dean did a great job and it was fun working with him. All you had to do was tell him something and he did it. The scene where he had a hangover, which he did in most of the scenes, there was one where he was suffering and I said, look, that's too damn polite. I knew a guy once with a hangover who'd pound his leg trying to hurt himself and get some feeling into it. So Dean said, okay, I know that kind of guy. I can do it. And then he went on and did the scene with no rehearsal or anything. And you know, that's another thing about Martin. Everything seemed to come easily to him, but perhaps it was all in his professionalism. Now, another thing, despite some of the darker underworld connections in Dean Martin's life, without which, by the way, he almost certainly would not have achieved his omniscient kind of celebrity status, everyone, or rather almost everyone from those who hired him, the producers, directors, those he worked with, his co-stars, to his ex-wives and girlfriends, refer to what a good person he was, how hard he worked, and what a helpful, no-ego collaborator he could be. Yes, in Hollywood. Well, and I, I say almost, certainly a damaged ego seems to have been at work as one of the causes in the long-standing rupture in both his professional and personal relationship with Jerry Lewis. Though that can, I think, be explained in part by Lewis's attempts to become the dominant partner during their heady days together in the 1950s. Um, and it also seems quite clear that he just got sick of the shtick. Martin, that is. In fact, um, the two never met again publicly until 1976 when Frank Sinatra brought um, Martin on stage at a Lewis uh, telethon charity for muscular dystrophy where the two had a kind of uh, public reconciliation. So despite that, uh, that anecdote from Lewis um, in which uh, Martin was very mean in the breakup, uh, and maybe a few other very minor stories amidst the bigger picture, Martin was almost always universally regarded as a gentleman, especially with the ladies, so many of whom pursued and quite genuinely seemed to have loved him. And all his female collaborators speak about how charming and how helpful he could be on set, and not for ulterior motives either. In fact, there are no stories here of any violent, abusive behavior, not even a hint, really. Though, of course, Dean Martin could be a legendary philanderer. But as I suggested earlier, the, the biographer uh, Nick Tosh is up to something else here beyond the merely 
biographical in detail, I mean, reminding us for one that so many of the vital figures in American pop culture have come from the working class, uh, especially from its immigrant uh, communities. But Tosh seems most engaged with his subject when using Martin as a means to ruminate on what he calls the reign of mediocrity in much of 20th century pop culture, especially as he sees it through the development and growing popularity of television, where Martin would find his final success with that rather tawdry The Dean Martin Show. And also the celebrity roasts of the late 60s and 1970s. But that democratic aspect can be both a blessing and a curse. For Tosh, this is a culture where every common man, and despite an unpromising background, can potentially become a king. Or what passes for royalty today. In fact, a celebrity. And for Tosh, though he doesn't rub your face in it, he can't help but feel that Dean Martin was the very embodiment of that kind of mediocrity as celebrity royalty. Whereas in this binary opposition, a figure like Sinatra from a similarly unpromising background was genuinely great. But before that point, the author has clearly seen something in Dean Martin, a kind of self-awareness and vessel for accepted vacuity that ultimately nothing matters very much. Just an easygoing kind of entertainment. That's all. Both in public, but especially in private. And it was that which made him enormously popular, both in public and private. So was it all just a persona? And if so, was there anything else underneath it? After reading this biography, it's hard to conclude that there was except that this kind of vacuity was maybe meant by Martin to deliberately distance himself from everyone. And maybe that's the definition of cool. According to Tosh, no one really knew Dean Martin. He remained apart, mysteriously unengaged with people, both in public and in private, at any deeper level. But for Tosh, that was also one of the reasons why Martin could be so funny on stage and on screen. He hovered above the action, seeming to react to it spontaneously as an amused bystander. And that's certainly what worked with Lewis. And it's also the Dean Martin that I recall as a child seeing on TV, the congenial faux drunk who reacted to whatever person or situation he was standing beside or in relation to doing it with gentleness, acceptance, and an often slightly, and sometimes not so slightly, off-color sense of the absurd. And if he always made fun of himself, he also never came off just looking like a jerk. There was always something seemingly too cool and untouchable about him. And as a kid, I felt privileged sometimes to be let in on the joke with so unflappable a performer. But he was also the working stiff who made it and made it big, becoming for so many adults at home, though I would not have understood this at the time, an avatar for a certain kind of louche, leisure class celebrity. Martin, especially on his The Dean Martin Show, made for many, doing nothing seemed the height 
of glamorous lassitude and the highest state achievable by a post-war consumer state viewer, at least until the politics of the day caught up with the show's knowing tawdriness, which I'm just old enough to remember. I mean, who could forget the scantily clad, very tacky Vegas-style sidekicks known almost unbelievably today as the gold diggers who would accompany Dean out on stage, by which point in retrospect, and let's face it, he had become an irretrievable self-parody. His days of being a romantic icon, long since gone. And in the words of Tosh himself, becoming a holy ghost of tastelessness. And yet, there's another thing about Martin as a performer, and one not unusual among his generation, that he just seemed so easy in his own skin, completely unselfconscious, that he and his public persona had seemingly become one at some point, perhaps very early on in his career. In fact, as Tosh tells the story, everything came easily to Martin. And it's it's the way, at his best, that he projected that easygoingness, that oh-so-smooth persona that you might say was his signature achievement. And what we most remember about him, whether in song or in movies or on television. For Tosh, as an artist, Martin demanded nothing from his audience except enjoyment for its own very immediate sake and without any accompanying demand to be loved in turn. He seemed almost without ego, a very likable quality, yet was clearly a man whom everyone seemed to love, both men and women, at least for a significant portion of his career. And then there are the mobsters and Martin's relations with certain well-known underworld characters, especially from Chicago, like Kennedy nemesis Sam Giancana, which were, according to Tosh, more cordial than cozy. Martin himself was never implicated directly in any criminal activity as an adult, though he did share investments with some mob figures and, like Sinatra, perform often as a favor and for free in their mob-run establishments. Tosh even quotes the legendary Los Angeles gangster, himself a celebrity of a kind, Mickey Cohen, as once saying, Dean had the perfect makeup to be a racket guy, although he is a little too lackadaisical, if you know what I mean quote-unquote. Now, I'm not exactly sure what Cohen meant by that. Perhaps he was referring to Martin's cool and flappableness, but he did say it, and there are many other mob guys invoked here along the way. So like Sinatra, Dean Martin did grow up among them and certainly inhabited much the same social world while on the nightclub circuit, both in his early days and later in Las Vegas and in New Jersey. For me, Nick Tosh is at his most interesting when exploring how that gangster element worked in combination with more legitimate enterprises and individuals like Martin, like Sinatra, to become a big-time mainstream success with Las Vegas and gaming establishments elsewhere. Something that is well documented in that Martin Scorsese movie Casino, which came out the same year that Martin died in 1995. Indeed, there have been few figures more closely associated with the often tawdry history of Las Vegas entertainment than Dean Martin himself. He was always in demand there. And he could 
be guaranteed of raking in thousands of dollars a week, doing just one set of night, making fun of himself on stage, rarely even getting to the end of a song on many occasions. The hotel owners didn't care. Not so long as the high rollers lapped it up. And they did, both men and women, comfortable to be in his presence, the presence of a performer so at ease with himself and with such a very relaxed persona. For Tosh, both Martin and Vegas are a kind of metaphor for the sketchy dreams of personal material success that would seemingly, in my view, have found their logical extension, perhaps even finite conclusion one hopes in our own current situation of a dubiously legitimate combination of politics, power, and entertainment. And of course, the subtitle of his book hints at this, Living High in the Dirty Business of Dreams. And so I guess I wonder if Tosh, in all his cynicism, all his jaundice, or even Martin for that matter, whether he might have imagined a figure so obviously dark and odious, if not corrupt, as celebrity president Donald Trump. I think it's the author's great accomplishment that he provides a kind of roadmap, though he could never have intended it as such, by which we might understand how we've come to this current moment. Towards the end of his book, when getting into the final years of Martin's public life, Tosh becomes really quite existential about it all, taking on the voice of Martin himself to ponder what he imagines Dean might have made of it all. A man that Tosh has continually presented as one with no romantic illusions, despite his crooning love songs. And I'm speaking here especially about illusions about himself or the world that he inhabited. What does it mean to live one's life knowing that it will all end? How does that form us? How does it develop us? Now, of course, these are questions probably not present when one can safely say in most celebrity biographies, especially that notion that everyone deals with the reality of death in his or her own way. And I don't know if Martin would have recognized himself in these passages, probably not. And they are definitely the most controversial in the book. But Tosh does take them on and uses them to speak in the persona of Martin. It's all very interesting, if not a little disturbing, especially since Martin was himself, of course, still alive at the time. And one can only speculate, perhaps ruminating himself about what it all meant. Although naturally he never made that public, if he did. Here's an example of that kind of writing I'm talking about, uh, which I hasten to add uh, does not make up the book as a whole, and which I'm going to edit a little here for the sake of propriety. This is Tosh. His schoolmates had never really known him. Even his loving family could not tell for sure what lay within this kid who moseyed around among them with a hat on, singing. There was a pin-tumbler sidebar lock on his guts that no one could ever pick. That was just the way he was, and it was just the way he always would be unlettered and rough cut. Dino possessed both wiles and wisdom beyond his years. 
anyone trying to mess with his mind or his body or his soul found this out right away. But the wisdom served by those wiles was an annihilating kind of wisdom. It was the wisdom of the old ways, a wisdom through which the seductions of reason and love and truth and all such frail and flimsy lepidoptera would in their seasons emerge and thrive, wither and die. The sum of Dino's instincts had to do with the old ways, those ways that were like a wall, ways that kept the world lontano, as the Mafia would say, distant, safely, and wisely at bay. That was how he liked it, lontano, like the flickering images on the theater screen that gave him pleasure as he sat alone, apart from them, and unknown to them, in the dark. Those close to him could sense it. He was there, but he was not really there, a part of them, but apart from them as well. The glint in his eye was disarming, so captivating yet so chilling at once, like lantern light gleaming on nighttime sea, the tiny soft twinkling, so gaily inviting, belying for an instant, then illuminating a vast unseen cold darkness beneath and beyond. The secret in its depth seemed to be the most horrible secret of all, that there was no secret, no mystery other than that which resides, not as a puzzle to be solved or a revelation to be discovered, but as blank imminence in emptiness itself. Dean was born alone, he would die alone. These truths he, like every punk, took to heart. But in him they framed another truth, another solitary, stubborn stone in the eye of nothing. There was something, a knowing in him that others did not apprehend. He was born alone and he would die alone, yes. But in between, somehow, the world in all its glory would hunker down before him. And I'm not going to quote what comes next <laughs> as, it's, as it's very, very, very much off color. But it does indicate his triumph uh, in the face of the world. So Dino living high in the dirty business of dreams is not at all a straightforward biography, not in the least. Though, as I said, all the conventional details are here beyond such uh, literary and ruminative language as this including much about his many marriages, including to Jeannie, Jeannie, his wife of 30 years, and the woman who stood by him quite movingly until the end, even after they had divorced. In fact, Jeannie confirms much about that passage that I just read, that she felt like she never really knew him, that he was never a man to confide in others, not even his own wife. Earlier in the book, Tosh quotes her saying, the most important thing to say about my husband is that I don't understand him. He's one of the rare human beings who's not comfortable with communicating. He's just not interested in doing that. Tosh thinks of this as maybe being Dean's inscrutable nature of being cool. Dean had it, but he couldn't share it. Not with his wives, not with himself. And then 
maybe if there's a tragic aspect to him, it turned into a kind of ennui in his last years. And Tosh speculates that maybe that's why Martin, in his sense of being apart from things, loved golf so much. And no account of Martin can go without mentioning golf, that most solitary of sports, as soothing for him as shuffling a deck of cards, in the writer's words. One could be with other men, but apart from them, in silence, in the open air, Tosh writes. The driver club face and that little white rubber cord ball barely met, 400 millionths of a second. That was it. And it was the sort of contact that Dean liked, quote unquote. Of course, there's also much here in this biography about the girlfriends and the many, many extramarital affairs that uh, Jeannie always seemed to forgive him for. Also, his highly successful television show of the late 60s, which I've mentioned, the Dean Martin show, his making of many, many millions of dollars in real estate, the televised celebrity roasts of the mid-70s, where I really first became aware of him as a kid. The death of his son, uh, Dean Jr., an event that he seemingly never recovered from emotionally, and then his suddenly walking away from it all. And his friends, walking away from his friends like Sinatra, to stay at home, mostly alone, to watch old westerns on television. That's what I meant, I think, by that tragic sense of ennui in his uh, present in his later years. But again, um, all these details are really just the jumping off point for Tosh's deeper ruminations on America and its cult of celebrity, all embodied in the carefully cultivated persona, seemingly, of the performer we know as Dean Martin. But Tosh does sprinkle the book, especially towards the end, with such passages and frequently uses untranslated Italian words as though he is trying to imagine himself into Martin's psyche, which really can't have been easy because, as I've pointed out, the permanently aloof Martin was resistant to analysis and self-reflection. So that's why Tosh does it for him, <laughs> fairly or unfairly. Martin did not talk much about what he did. He just did it. In fact, he only ever gave one serious sit-down interview, and that in 1967, to the often controversial Italian journalist and writer, uh, Oriana Falacci, of all people, believe it or not. For me, for me at least, with only a casual interest in most of Martin's movies, it's really his persona that I'm that most fascinates me, and none at all in his music. Um, he remains a hazy, nostalgic figure from my childhood, as if an amiable, drunken, but otherwise unknowable uncle. But for Tosh, Martin is most interesting as a figure by which to think about America, the history and vitality of its hardworking immigrant communities, but also the ultimate emptiness of celebrity itself, and most especially as a peculiar intersection of show business, the underworld, and politics. By the way, like Sinatra, Martin also became a great supporter of Ronald Reagan, even doing benefit shows for him towards the end of his public years. 
So it's kind of characteristic of Nick Tosh that he would write a biography about Dean Martin instead of Frank Sinatra, just as another biography he did was of Sonny Liston instead of the more obvious subject of Muhammad Ali. It's as if Tosh wouldn't want the great accomplishments of both Sinatra and Ali to get in the way of his deeper ruminations on the darkness at the center of American life. So yes, this is a bit of a philosophical book at times. Well-written, quite literate, in fact. So if you go into it looking for something more traditional, more conventional in approach, you will likely be a little confused, even disappointed. But if you give up your expectations and, like Martin, just go with the flow, I think you might enjoy it. Anyway, that's all for now. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing with Co-St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. I hope you've enjoyed this installment and will join me next time for recommendations of what to watch and where to watch them. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at cotesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving me a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now. Well, hello there, and welcome to A Musical Moment. My name is Farah Mohammed, and for today's theme, we celebrate the mighty word. What do I mean? Book Lovers' Day, of course. Every August 9th is National Book Lovers' Day, a holiday observed by bibliophiles far and wide who celebrate reading and literature. So hopefully this coming Sunday, we will put down that smartphone, switch off those technological distractions, and pick up a good book to read. And what's so special about books anyway? Well, books are magical. They can teach us, transport us, make us feel safe, push us out of our comfort zones, and make us feel like we know people and places even have never been existed. Books can teach us about the world, and they can teach us about ourselves. So whether you stay in bed or find the perfect spot under the shade of a tree, kick back, relax, and get lost inside a book this coming Sunday. To put you in the mood, today's playlist will reflect everything to do with books. Now, as little kids, before we can read, we need to know our letters. Here's a cute and clever alphabet song, sung by the King of Cool, otherwise known as Dean Martin, singing A, You're Adorable, a song written by Buddy Kay, Fred Wise, and Sidney Lipman from 1948. A, you're adorable. B, you're so beautiful. C, you're a cutie, full of charm. D, you're a darling. And E, you're exciting. And F, you're a feather in my arm. G, you look good to me. And H, you're so heavenly. I, you're the one I idolize. 
It's fun to wander through the alphabet with you To tell you what you mean to me M-N-O-P I could go on all day Q-R-S-T Alphabetically speaking You're okay Well, you've made my life complete And V means you're very sweet W-X-Y-Z It's fun to wander through The alphabet with you To tell you what you mean To me Edward Dobkins Jr. was an American singer and songwriter best known for his 1959 hit, My Heart is an Open Book. The record sold over one million copies, and the single ranked number 19 on Billboard's year-end Hot 100 singles of 1959, no doubt because of its catchy lyrics. Look, look, my heart is an open book. I love nobody but you. Look, look, my heart is an open book. My love is honest and true. Don't believe all those lies. Darling, just believe your eyes. And look, look, my heart is an open book. I love. Nobody but you Look, look My heart is an open book My love is honest and true Some jealous so and so Wants us to part That's why he's telling you that I've got a cheating heart Don't believe all those lies Darling, just believe your eyes And look, look My heart is an open book I love nobody but you some jealous so and so wants us to part. That's why he's telling you that I've got a cheating heart. 
during the late 1980s and 1990s. Her hushed, restrained folk pop and highly literate lyrics laid the initial musical groundwork for what was later to become the trademark sound of Lilith Fair, a tour on which she was a regular. Moreover, her left-field hit singles like Luca and Tom's Diner helped convince record companies that folk-styled singer-songwriters were not a thing of the past. While majoring in English literature at Barnard College, she performed in small venues in Greenwich Village. In 1984, she received a major label recording contract, making her one of the first singer-songwriters of her generation to break out on a major label. Here is In My Book of Dreams.
an upbeat number by Ellis McDaniel, otherwise known as Bo Diddley, who is an American singer, guitarist, songwriter, and music producer who played a key role in the transition from the blues to rock and roll. He influenced many artists, including Buddy Holly, Elvis Presley, The Beatles, and The Rolling Stones. You can't judge a book by the cover, is a 1962 song written by the rock and roll pioneer. You can't judge an apple by looking at a tree. You can't judge honey by looking at the bee. You can't judge a daughter by looking at the mother. You can't judge a book by looking at the cover. By looking at a tree, you can't judge honey by looking at the bee. You can't judge a daughter by looking at the mother. You can't judge a book by looking at the cover. Oh, can't you see? By looking at the cover
rock and roll number sung by the Monotones, who were a six-member Afro-American doo-wop vocal group from the 1950s. This song peaked at number five on the Billboard Top 100 in 1958. However, sadly, the Monotones pretty much ended up being a one-hit wonder. Chapter one says, to love her, you love her with all your heart. Chapter two You tell her you're never, never gonna part. In chapter three, remember the meaning of romance. In chapter four, you break up, but you give her just one more chance. I wonder, wonder who, who, who wrote the book of Most definitely not a one-hit wonder. 
This next group single-handedly changed the musical landscape of the 1960s. Paperback Writer is a song by the English rock band The Beatles, written primarily by Paul McCartney and credited to the Lennon-McCartney Partnership. The song was released in May 1966. It topped the singles charts in Britain, the U.S., Ireland, West Germany, Australia, New Zealand, and Norway. On the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, the song was at number one for two non-consecutive weeks, being interrupted by Frank Sinatra's Strangers in the Night. Paperback Writer was the last new song by the Beatles to be featured on their final tour in 1966. The song's lyrics are in the form of a letter from an aspiring author addressed to a publisher. The author badly needs a job and has written a paperback book based on a novel by a man named Lear. Here it is, Paperback Writer. Paperback Writer bring back memories for many. The Jungle Book was a collection of children's stories written by English journalist, short story writer, poet, and novelist Joseph Rudyard Kipling. He was born in India, which inspired much of his work. Most of his characters in The Jungle Book are animals, such as Shere Khan the tiger and Baloo the bear, 
though a principal character is the boy, or man-cub, Mowgli, who is raised in the jungle by wolves. In 1967, Walt Disney Productions made an animated musical film based on Kipling's story. The Bare Necessities is a song from that movie, and its message is a timely one. Don't spend your time looking around for something that can't be found. When you find out you can live without it, then go along and not think about it. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your stress. I mean the bare necessities or Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. Wherever I wander, wherever I roam, I couldn't be found off my big home. The bees are buzzing in the tree to make some honey just for me. When you look under the rocks and plants and take a glance at the fancy ants, then maybe try a few. The bare necessities of life will come to you, they'll come to you. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. I mean the bare necessities, that's why a bear can rest at ease with just the bare necessities of life. Now when you pick a pawpaw or a prickly pear, and you prick a raw paw, well, next time, beware. Don't pick the prickly pear by the paw. When you pick a pear, try to use the claw. But you don't need to use the claw when you pick a pair of the big paw paw. Have I given you a clue? The bare necessities of life will come to you. They'll come to you. Just try and relax, yeah, cool it, fall apart in my backyard. Cause let me tell you something, little wretches, if you act like that bee acts, uh-uh, you're working too hard. And don't spend your time looking around for something you want that 
can't be found. When you find out you can live without it and go along not thinking about it, I'll tell you something true. The bare necessities of life will come to you. I hope that you've enjoyed today's collection of literary references in song. During these difficult times of being at home, what better way to enrich, educate, and entertain ourselves than to delve into a good read? So, in honor of Book Lovers Day, be sure to set aside some time to read. Not only does it reduce stress, it's a nice way to relax and to enjoy quality time by yourself. See you next time. Bye for now. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to you for listening here today. The show is produced by me, Daryl Levine. The telephone broadcasting service and podcast was launched as a way to get content into your home during the pandemic period. As you know, we had to stop our events at the library and at Parks and Recreation, so we hope you're enjoying the podcast as a sort of a virtual way of getting the content to you so you can hear your favorite speakers at home. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Every rating and review helps others to find the show. Have a great day.